This month marks 10 years of Monocle 24, and to mark the anniversary, we're counting down some of our favorite moments on air, from live broadcasts out on the road to coverage of the biggest news stories of the decade, to some of the many famous names who have graced our studios around the world. The first clip today comes from an episode of The Big Interview with Tom Edwards, where he met the Italian chef and restaurateur Massimo Bottura. As well as being a chef, Bottura is a keen music collector, and that's what they started out talking about. Massimo Bottura, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Monocle 24. I'm interested in those joins in your head. I know you love music, and you were showing your record collection to one of my colleagues in the the magazine. Yes. Um, Actually, I I just bought a new collection. A very old collection from a guy that um, he just passed away. So his wife called uh, the the office and they said, okay, come here. Maybe we could be interesting in the collection. So uh, she dropped by all these incredible 2,500 vinyl from the 50s of jazz music that his husband was collecting for years and years, decades. When I saw them, I like, oh my God, what do we we have in Modena? You know, I I called her immediately. I went just to check. Everything was like perfectly kept in like in plastic seal. And you know, I said, okay, I'm buy it. So this is new stuff that is adding to the. So the collection has grown by twenty yeah, like percent. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. we don't have any space now, so we have to build a new library. <laughs> this is the right way around to be doing things. Yeah. But Massimo, I must ask you when when are you going to have time? That's a lot of records, right? Twenty five hundred. Yeah, uh, it's a uh, it's it's a lot of record. They're like uh, right now, I think there are twelve thousand. But uh, and Lara said, but where are we going to put all these records? I said, this is the dream as, as you buy. You no, know, once there was like for at least 10 years, we, we look for a, a rondinone, a big uh, target of rondinone. And, uh, you know, after 10 years, I found the most beautiful target ever made, three meters point zero five, But it didn't fit in the house. And so I bought it. I said, don't worry about that. We're going to find a way to put it. And then when they deliver it, there was no space even to to put in in the house because the the doors they're they're like too small, and this big painting like round circle you couldn't you know move uh, move it around. I said, okay, let's put it downstairs. But downstairs there's no the 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 it's not enough the 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 ceiling and uh, you know I said okay let's break the ceiling. <laughs> and so I asked the guy who worked in the house to break the walls and ceiling and we fit and to fit the, the painting because art is about dream. It's not about how big it is, if it's fit well or it looks good in that place. Oh, that's good. No, that's decorative. Art is dream. It's about dreaming, like music, like the dream is is something that make you a better person. And what what cost does that, or can that come at? Do you think you need to pursue that dream regardless? I mean, I know when you were much younger, you were maybe one time going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a footballer maybe. Yeah. How important is it to give everything to in pursuit of that dream? Do, do you have to, does no, it, must it come at all costs? You know, I grew up in a, in a very wealthy family, so I know exactly how to grow up with no need and nothing. But uh, it's not that the money they make you happy, you know. So my mom and my older brother encouraged me to follow my dream. And uh, one of the dreams I have was food, uh, with art, with music. One week later, I have this small restaurant outside in the country. 
everybody was saying, okay, is the spoiled breath that is gonna, you know, stay six months and then is gonna come back uh, to the university. And I never left, you know. Maybe because growing up, uh, I remember, I always have this image of me uh, running in the kitchen, uh, stealing food, uh, close to all my all the women of the house, like my grandmother, my La Tata Ines, and uh, you know my mom, uh, my aunt Anna, you know, and they were spoiling me, and uh, so I always thought the kitchen was the my my safety place, the place where I I belong. Even now, I think when I've, I'm in trouble. I'm in the kitchen with my That's your with my guys. Yes, and it's interesting to reflect on. I guess these traditional ingredients. And yeah. Italy has a reputation as a country where they're very serious about food. There's a food tradition. Yeah. Now your cooking has obviously always been a bit of a marriage of these traditions, traditional ingredients, but with a contemporary touch. Is that yeah. is that a it's been, a, is that a challenge yeah, or, does it's, it, or it's is, not, do they not necessarily contradict no. one another? Once I was talking with Rene and I said, uh, I think. It was more challenging for me to try to innovate Italian cuisine than for you to create a Nordic cuisine, you know, because, you know, they don't ha- they didn't what, have what did he say about they that? didn't have. <laughs> no, we were discussing about that because they didn't have anything. You know, you know, the people, they were like, why do we have to spend time around the table? They didn't get it. No, before. But for me to just to break all tradition like Ai Weiwei, you know, when he breaks the vase and, uh, you know, 2,000 years old vase and says, I'm not defeating my past. I'm breaking my past to build a new tradition filtered by a contemporary mind is exactly what I do. I look at the past in a critic way, not in a nostalgic way, always. Mm. And I get the best from the past into the future. If I have a big pan of lasagna, as a kid, I know that the best part of the lasagna is the crunchy part. The rest is for adults to eat and get fat. But the crunchy part is just emotion, pure emotions. Next, Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak, spoke to the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, about his plans to revive international diplomacy, reform the UN, and why he's feeling hopeful about 2021. We're speaking at the end of a very busy week of international Diplomacy, just today as we speak, you and other world leaders have been addressing a virtual event of the Munich Security Conference. G7 leaders are holding a virtual meeting as well. We will get to, or I'd like to get to some of the the substance of these, of course, but I wonder first, how productive have you found all of these virtual meetings? Are you you missing the value of in-person diplomacy? Of course, we miss, it, we miss the value of in-person diplomacy, but I believe we are in a moment of hope. Last year, we had what I called the anus horribilis. We had the COVID. We were still not making enough progress in relation to climate action. We had a dramatic increase of inequalities. Uh, also, the Sustainable Development Goals uh, backtracking, uh, gender equality backtracking. We had a dramatic aggravation of uh, the risks of nuclear proliferation. So it was indeed an extremely negative year. And 2021 is the year to put things back on track. And I believe things are happening in that direction. We see that uh, for the first time in the last few days, uh, there is a growing belief of developed countries that they need to look seriously into a global vaccination approach and not only to vaccinate their own people. We are now clearly with a renewed 
dynamic approach to build a global net zero coalition for the emissions in 2050. We had in the end of last year already a number of uh, positive uh, evolutions uh, from China to Korea to Japan. But now with the Biden administration, the United States is on board. A number of very important measures were taken already inside the US in relation to climate action. And I believe all the conditions are now met in order to make sure that we will come to the COP26 in, in Glasgow. I've seen a very dynamic US society and now all this is piling up to make us, uh, for the first time, be optimistic that it is possible to defeat climate change. And then we see uh, progress uh, being made in relation to some of the complex security issues in the world. Strong engagement of the US in relation to Yemen. The ceasefire in, in Libya is holding and the political process is moving on very positively. Ceasefire is still holding in the Ukraine, more or less in Syria. There is a perspective of a peace process uh, being able to start again in the near future in relation to the Israeli-Palestinian question. The JCPOA, uh, of course, it's a very complex dossier, but at least there is hope that it will be possible to, again, uh, consider it as a viable instrument of nuclear security. We are making progress uh, in uh, the fight against racism. There is a growing concern about misinformation, about the COVID and in general, a growing concern about the risks of technology and the need to come together in order to find new ways to make, namely, the digital world a force for good. So I think there are reasons to be, if not entirely optimistic, at least fully determined to make 2021 a game changer and the year where we start to heal and we start to put the international community back on track and the planet together with the people in the center of our concerns. Well, you've alluded there partly to also your, your message, I suppose, for 2021. You said last year, you know, was an annus horribilis, as you say, and you've called 2021 really a moment of truth, a time for nations to make a greater effort and reverse course, as it were. What is it that makes this year such a crucial one for international diplomacy, in your view? Well, first of all, the change in the U.S. administration is a very important precondition. It's, it's not, uh, of course, enough to solve uh, all problems, but it is an important precondition with a strong engagement in relation to multilateralism and international cooperation. The fact that 2021 is the year where key decisions will be taken in relation to climate, and it's still possible to guarantee that uh, we don't have an increase of temperature in the end of the century above 1.5 degrees, but we are coming close to a moment where this becomes irreversibly impossible. So 2021 is the moment of truth. On the other hand, there is a growing conscience and a very active role of the civil society and the youth on that, a growing conscience that we need to make peace with the planet, but at the same time, a growing conscience that the social cohesion of our societies needs to be reestablished and the trust between uh, public uh, people and institutions needs to be reestablished to address the inequalities. Uh, I, I remember the time when inequalities were considered basic precondition for development to be possible, for the accumulation of capital that was necessary for development to be possible. Now there is a growing conscience that inequalities became an obstacle to, to development beyond, of course, their dramatic impact in the lives of people, especially of the most vulnerable people. So I think there is a, a mind shift taking place, and this mind shift will help create the political 
engagement that is necessary for the different changes uh, that we need to make. Changes in relation to the way we deal with the pandemic, changes in the way we deal with the cohesion of our societies and inequalities around the world, and hopefully also changes in the strengthening of a multilateralism, but a multilateralism that needs also to be more inclusive. Governments have no longer the monopoly of political power or political representation. More and more, if we want to have a, a true multilateral capacity to deal with the, the global challenges, we need to involve cities, we need to involve the business community, we need to involve the civil society, we need to involve uh, the youth, and their voices need to be not only heard, but participate in decision-making processes at the level of which governments operate at national level, but at the level also at which international institutions operate at global level, including the UN. Well, you spoke there about re-establishing trust and also about multilateralism. It does strike me that you have, I was, I was listening to an interview that you gave in September where, you know, you struck a very a different tone, it's fair to say. You said that the jury was out on whether the sort of nationalistic go-it-alone mentality or a more multilateral approach to international diplomacy would win the day. And you said at the time that the next few months would really be critical to see which philosophy sort of wins out and would depend on things like equitable vaccine distribution, for example. Which, which side do you think is winning today? It is clear for me that progressively nationalism, populism and the other aspects related to it, from xenophobia to racism uh, to intolerance of different sorts, uh, that to a certain extent would correspond to a post-Enlightenment world. In my opinion, this trend is starting to lose ground. Just to give an example, the populist leaders were the most ineffective in dealing with the COVID around the world. People are getting conscious of that. If one looks at what has happened uh, in elections around the world, uh, one year ago, the key issue in those elections would be migration. And unfortunately, migration used as a tool to create fear, to create hatred, and to promote this kind of populist, irrational, and xenophobic political forces. In recent times, the key element in elections has been the COVID and the climate. And we have seen climate-friendly parties and political leaders gaining ground in many parts of the world. So I think that slowly... And of course, this is a battle that never ends and we cannot uh, just believe that everything is uh, moving in the right direction so we don't need to care. But slowly, I believe that the idea of solidarity and the idea of international cooperation is gaining ground in relation to what was the predominant trend of uh, one year ago, clearly in favor of uh, nationalism, populism, xenophobia, intolerance and uh, other factors uh, that were undermining the trust, the trust between peoples and institutions, the trust among countries, and the trust within communities themselves, where, of course, polarization was becoming a, a threat, even a threat to the working of democratic societies. I hope that uh, democracy will be coming back, and I hope that uh, rationality will be coming back, tolerance will be coming back, and international cooperation based on solidarity will also be coming back. But as I said, this is not a one battle. This is a continued struggle. 
But uh, I think there are reasons to be more optimistic today than a year ago. It's always good to learn new skills, and that's something we're very keen on getting our staff to do on air. Over the years, we've had people come in to teach us how to cook, arrange flowers, whistle, even yodel. In this clip, our Welsh-speaking Toronto Bureau Chief Tomás Lewis teaches our Brazilian culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, how to speak Welsh. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Now, in common with many countries, the United Kingdom imposes a test of basic knowledge on prospective new citizens. Earlier this week, one arrival from Brazil, a Dr. Rodolfo Piskorski, became the first person to pass this test in Welsh. He gave two perfectly decent reasons for uh, electing to do this. One, that he has spent most of his time here in this country in Cardiff, of which he has grown fond. And two, that the citizenship test is basically a none to exist exacting multiple-choice pub quiz, and this made it more of a challenge. Well, excitingly, we here at Monocle24 are in a position to repeat this experiment, and we use the word experiment advisedly, given the high likelihood of this going spectacularly wrong. I'm joined now by our Welsh-speaking Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis, and our culture correspondent, straight out of Sao Paulo, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Thomas, I will come to you first before we set about attempting to teach Fernando how to speak your language. Um, How hard do you think it is for the newcomer to learn to speak Welsh? Well, Welsh is my first language, so I get rather smug with questions like this, Andrew, (laughs) because I was just born and raised speaking it, going to school in the Welsh language and watching Welsh language TV at home, speaking to my mum at home, getting told off by my mum in Welsh at home as well. Um, But people who do try to speak it in later life do say that it's incredibly tricky because it's a gendered language and uh, maybe unusually for for Welsh there are mutations is what we call them so depending on the gender of the word and the gender of the the speaker and the person you're addressing the gender can change if that makes sense so it it makes very very little sense Thomas very little sense indeed would you like a very quick example? So I, the Welsh word, I, I the would. Welsh word for, for cat is cath. So if I was saying your cat, Andrew, I would say der gath. So the C changes to G. If I was saying her cat, I'd say a chath, which is ch instead of the C, and so on and so forth. So that's what that's the hurdle for a lot of learners in later life, Andrew. Okay, well, I, I for one now have absolutely every confidence this is going to go swimmingly. What I thought I would do here. Thomas, is I will suggest a couple of phrases which might come in handy for Fernando were he to visit the land of your fathers. Uh, you can tell him what that phrase is in Welsh, and then Fernando can have a crack at pronouncing it. And I should make it clear to Thomas and our listeners that Fernando has turned up here with his, his little Welsh flag he's found from somewhere. I do. Well, in fact, a former Welsh colleague gave it to me. So in my desk, you have the Brazilian flag and the Welsh flag, funnily enough. Uh, hands across the ocean <laughs> right there. Um, Thomas, how would Fernando go? go about introducing himself in Wales. How would he say, hello, my name is Fernando Augusto Pacheco? So Fernando would say, Shumai ve'enui eu Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Okay, Fernando, let's have it. Shumai ve'enui Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Not bad. Not, <laughs> not, bad actually, actually, not, not bad at all. I'm scared. How many languages do you already speak, though? Do you, do you have an unfair head start here? No, really. It's just Spanish, English, Portuguese, and a little bit of Italian and French, perhaps. Okay, you're about four. And Welsh now, clearly. And, and Welsh now, clearly. You're five languages ahead of me. Okay, let, let, let's make it a little bit more tricky. Thomas, some, some everyday conversational phrases in Wales. I was going to suggest, who do you like better, Tom Jones or Shirley Bassey? Okay, Fernando, are you ready? 
Pwy yw defefryn, Tom Jones neu Shirley Bassey. That's a difficult one. Pwy defefryn, Shirley Bassey or Tom Jones? <laughs> he's actually pretty good at this, Thomas. How, how do you reckon he's going here? He's not bad at all. Not bad at all. And the pronunciation, is, pronunciation I should say, is perfect. That's uh, what hamstrings a lot of people, but it's great for Nigeria Natural. I like the singer-song element of it. Okay. Uh, th- Thomas, do you have a preference between Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey, or do- does expressing any preference one way or the other cause you more trouble than it's worth should you go back home again? I would have my passport revoked, Andrew, if I uh, if I took any preference on that. But probably Tom Jones. I've been to a Tom Jones concerts in my Tom Jones concert in my life, and that was a bit of a life highlight, probably. Um, the next phrase I would like to try out is possibly a bit niche. It, it is drawn from my own fascination with the overrunning of one particular Welsh conurbation by wild goats during the quiet times of COVID-19 lockdown. So, and, and it's a sort of phrase that I think could come up uh, were Fernando ever to spend more time in Wales, perhaps make a home there. Uh, and, and the phrase that we now need to address is, the goats of Flandidno have eaten my hedges. Okay, this is quite tricky, Fernando, so listen carefully. My gaver Llandidno wedi bwyta fym herfi. I got the beginning. My gaver Sandernot. And, and, you, and, and I got lost. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what, what, what is the back end of that again, Thomas? Okay. My gaver Llandidno wedi bwyta fym herfi. My gaver Sandernot bwyta lerfi. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so hard. I, I I think I got at the start was good, but then I ended horribly. I'm so sorry, Welsh listeners. Okay, this that that one clearly needs work, but I, I guess the final one, Thomas, and this is one that I think this is kind of included here as a shout out to the producer of this program, also from Wales, uh, Rhys James. Um, and and I think it's the kind of phrase that would help Fernando to win friends uh, visiting Wales, and that phrase is, "Please talk to me at great length about rugby." Again, I'm very good when I start the phrases, but then, yeah, it, it, it is a tough one, Thomas, I have to say. But you're a great teacher, I would say. Uh, this, is, this is going remarkably well, and actually, quite disappointingly, we are almost out of time. Thomas, is, is there just something you would like to sign off with to our listeners? A phrase they can all take away and practice until we come back to this next... We're not going to come back to this next <laughs> week. But nevertheless, is there one, one Welsh phrase you would like to teach the world to sing? All patriots, I would say, who speak Welsh know the phrase, Andrew, Cymru am Bith, which loosely translated is Wales forever. Cymru am Bith. On that patriotic note, I feel like we should have some, uh, like a miners' choir to play us out underneath this rather than our usual bed, but we didn't think that far in advance. Never mind. Thomas Lewis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both very much for joining us. Maybe next week, Fernando, you could teach Thomas to speak Portuguese. Next, we listen back to an episode of Monocle on Culture, broadcast in 2013, which takes us through the jungle to remote villages of Papua New Guinea. Reporter Annie Hastel met an anthropologist and a musician who were working on a project to document the songs of the country, songs that have complex cultural meaning, but due to mining, missionaries, and the lure of the outside world, are on the brink of extinction. I first went to Papua New Guinea in 1962, as a school teacher, I just wanted to get to New Guinea. 
50 years ago, Barry Craig found a rich culture in the remote highlands of New Guinea. The Pacific Island nation, just north of Australia, is a country of rugged mountains and jungles. It had kept communities isolated, even from each other, and virtually untouched by the outside world. People generally look the same as they would have for the last several hundred years, if not thousands of years there, wore the same kinds of ornaments and clothing, if you can call it that, and um, behaved in a quite traditional manner. Music was a vital part of New Guinea village life. People composed their own songs, they told stories and communicated through music. And Barry observed that much of it was inspired by the exotic birds that were a constant soundtrack to their lives. Uh, early one morning I woke up, the river was um, high, and an elderly man was sitting there quietly and there was loud bird calls from across the other side of the river. And then he started to sing. And so I crept the microphone up to him without saying anything and just recorded him singing with these birds in the background. And later on I discovered that he was singing about the bird that we could hear most prominently across the riverbank. Twenty years later, in the early 1980s, Barry had moved from being a teacher to an anthropologist and was curator of PNG's National Museum. He was seeing the country change rapidly. Traditions were being lost as mining moved into remote areas. About that time, Chris Roberts, a keen young musician who also had a lifelong fascination with New Guinea, turned up on his doorstep. When I was a child, I wanted to go to the island of New Guinea. I'd seen it on television. I was impressed. That was my, my fantasy, um, to go where, where, where people lived in mountains and, and the clouds were below them. This American fellow turned up with a double bass and said that he was interested in recording traditional songs somewhere in New Guinea. And I said, well, why not go to the Octeti area where the mine is to record the songs there before the impact of the mine might uh, have some effect on people's traditions? It'd be good to record them now, before they're lost. Chris Roberts set off with his double bass on his back, climbing for 12 hours up a forest-covered rock escarpment through the clouds. The people of the Star Mountains were intrigued by their visitor and his instrument. The first time people heard me play the bass, they thought it was talking. They figured that the music of the bass was actually some form of, of, of speech. And uh, I brought the bow with me, and the first music I played was from the Baroque period. I played the music of J.S. Bach, and I also played the Mozart, and I also played them some, some bebop jazz. People responded to the phrasing of the music much as you might respond to a story that you've heard for the first time. So if the music paused, uh, people would draw their breath and wait until I put that last note on there, and then, ah you would hear people exhale. So yes, people were listening with the kind of attention I, I wish I had with most audiences. In New Guinean culture, nothing's written down, and many people were already nervous for the future of their song culture. Everything was changing. When Chris arrived and was interested in their music, they saw it as their chance to get the songs recorded and written down. Once people saw the bass and, and heard concerts coming from me, uh, people would offer me their traditional songs. Uh, what I did was, was write them down right away as best I could, 
and then I could return to the, the motifs in the music I had sketched and ask them more specifically what the story of the song might be. Gradually, people would teach me phrase by phrase and thought by thought uh, what's in the songs. And I would, I would put more detail on the transcriptions until we'd written it down right. You hear a song, you go, wow, what a wonderful song. Let's have the story of the song. And you, you, you ask what it means, and people start talking about the bird behaviors. And you go, okay. And then they show you a bird that, my goodness, what are we talking about? It takes a long time to put all this together. Chris found, as Barry Craig had, that birds were the key to unlocking the meaning of songs. The people of Papua New Guinea felt so close to birds and knew their ways so well that they would use them as metaphors when telling stories or in ceremonies. One kind of initiation in this area is that the young boys are taken inside a men's house which they call Kabilam, and Kabel is the name of the hornbill. And the hornbill, uh, the female, has its eggs inside a hole, a hollow in a tree. And the male brings the food to the hole in the tree to feed the female, and then when the young chicks hatch, to also feed the young chicks. So that is what's going on in the, the men's cult house when the young boys are being initiated. There are men inside that are with the initiates who are called the mothers, although they're men of course, and there are the men outside who bring the food and they're called the fathers. So the whole idea of the hornbill's nesting habits becomes a metaphor for initiation of those young boys. Chris Roberts and Barry Craig promised the elders in the Star Mountains that their songs would live on. Chris says it's important because they are unique. They're personal. I, I think if you asked most people in other countries, have you ever kept a diary? They could say, oh, sure, I did that as a kid, or maybe I do, but I'm not going to show you. Uh, I have a lock on my diary just to make sure you can't even find it, this kind of thing. Um, in the Star Mountains of New Guinea, everyone uh, kept diaries of their lives through melodies, and this is a, a very creative melody-making. If you, if you first walk in and you hear all these tunes, you go, oh, my gosh, what wonderful songs, and so many, and, and such variety of songs. And, and this is the song culture that, that was very much existent when I first walked into the Star Mountains. I was thrilled by it. I was inspired, and I thought, wow, everybody composes music. The two men are just now nearing the end of the 30-year project to transcribe and translate 200 songs and return them to the people of the Star Mountains. Chris says it's lucky they started when they did. Even before I finished uh, the initial 12 and a half years of translating these songs, uh, people were no longer composing like this. Right? It, was, it was against the rules. And sadly, that very creative tradition I saw dissolved in front of me. But we do have the songs intact. For Monocle on location, I'm Annie Hestwell. In this report from an episode of The Urbanist about taxis, we learned about a service catering for the LGBTQ plus community in San Francisco. It was set up by performer Lynn Breedlove and a reporter, Tanya Katangian, set out with her one evening to learn about her drivers and her customers. I'm Lenny Breedlove, and I run a 
community ride service called Homobiles. It's volunteer run. It's uh, donation based. It's a proposed California nonprofit, and it's here for the queer community, for women, for trans people, for performers, for drag queens, LGBT, IQQ, LMNOP, QRST. <laughs> you know, you name it. We're here for you. We're for anybody that needs, say, feels like they need safe transport because of their gender or sexuality or work or anything that they feel like puts them at risk that makes you a target. So how did you start Homobiles? I couldn't tour anymore because I had to stay home and take care of my mom. Um, I was brainstorming with a friend of mine. I was like, what can I do? What can I do? And um, decided to use my mom's car to give my pals rides. It just went viral like everybody wanted it. And so then I just called my pals and they were like, yeah, 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 we're ready. So they did it. We all did it. We just, they, people asked and we provided. How many drivers are there now? There's probably like 10 or 15. What are some of the names that some of them go by that you, you know, that come to mind when I ask you that? Well, we've had Mercy Fuck, who's a drag queen. And we had Karma's a Bitch, who's also a drag queen. We had Daria, she's a total badass. She was a drummer, she was in five bands. She would like sing along with the radio in the car. People loved her. She's crack up. And um, Biachi, Becca, and Ajax. And they all use their own cars and slap on a, a sort of like a, a sign on the side of the car. Yeah. And then as for how people hear about it, it's just word of mouth? Yeah. We don't have a million bucks, like put up a big billboard and be like, look at us. And also, I keep telling people, don't tell everybody about us. <laughs> Pick one person a month that you really love and you really want them to be safe. And then you go, hey, pst, come here, I got something for you. And then you give them the number. You know, I, I don't want a big billboard. I want everybody in the world to be, because we already had that. Everybody found out about us. The numbers got passed around and went all crazy. And we were like, no, we're busy getting these specific people that can't get rides. Homobiles, I mean, it's a funny name. Why did you go with something funny? Because that's what makes people uh, pay attention. Your heart opens when you laugh. And then you listen. Your mind opens, your heart opens, and whatever goes in then, it gets past your defenses. When that when, In that moment that your heart and your mind open, that's when I'm going to zip the message in there, you know? So that's why Homobiles is like a constant heart opener. It just like opens your heart and it puts a big two by four in there and it holds it open. And then every time you see it, you go, oh my God, I love Homobiles. I love queers. I love homos. I love drag queens. I totally want to help. I love them. I am a queer. I'm kind of queer. I let my girlfriend, you know, just pinch my ass the other day. That's gay. <laughs> you know, I love Homobiles. Woo, it's funny. Yeah. It's great. Hey, uh, just head kind of central, head toward Hazen Laguna. Uh, I might have okay. something headed out toward uh, City College right now. Okay, great. I'm telling her you're on your way. She's late to class right now, but I'm going to see. All right, so that was a great example of how there are all kinds that use homobiles. There's a drag queen that wants to be taken to wherever she needs to go. Or 
in drag or not, and there's people that need to get to class, and they're calling automobiles. Yeah, and well, there's also differently abled people, and they like there's this one woman lives up in Twin Peaks. She has a cat. She takes the vet out in the avenues. Well, the cat, Andy the cat, I mean, she's got MS. Andy's person does, and she's like trying to catch the cat and put the cat in a, a cat bag. So you, know, you go up there, you, you catch the cat, which she cannot do. She can barely walk, you know. And you like lure him over and his sweet talk and throw in the bag, zip it up, carry it down, like organize her and her cat and everything into the bag. Like cab drivers aren't going to do that. That's not their job. But because we are here to help, we're doing all kinds of stuff like that. Like she wants homobiles. She wants a friend to come and help her that she trusts. Or... The other night, I got, like, a drag queen that had one Miss Royal Bunny for Easter. It's like, like she has a little sash, and she looks really beautiful, and her boyfriend is super sweet. And she's like, look what I want. Happy Easter. And then I'm going to go to sleep now. Okay. Good night. And there's old, old gay guy that's like, a couple of old bunch of old gay guys they're just ancient you know and they love homobiles they want to get around and they've seen a lot and if you are an old gay guy man you have jumped through some hoops and somehow survived the impossible so why do you want other seas to have it why do you think it's important because queers and everybody women everybody even skinny white skinny little guys with glasses Everybody needs safe transport. Transportation, as I like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) There's people that hate queers and are like, I don't want those people around my children. Hey, you get a bunch of drag queens and they will raise thousands of dollars for children dying of cancer so they can get some cute little costume. And that's what they want. Their dying wish is a costume, which I think is like just so beautiful and poetic. You know, you're going to get a costume for you because that's what we do. We wear costumes and that's what you want. So we're getting it. I heard that one time and I was like, oh my God, I just, I cry at least once a day in this homobile because of stuff like that. Like I had all these drag queens, they live in a low income place that, you know, they could barely afford a homobile. And they went out there and they raised like several thousand dollars for some dying children. And they're going home and then they want to like, I'm just... I feel I'm part of that, you know? And when somebody else gets in the car, and they know on some level, even though they might not know the specifics, that they're part of that too. Let's now listen back to another live session recorded at Midori House in 2013 when we welcomed the Hot 8 Brass Band to play in our studio. Here they are with Ghost Town.
Now we have an interview with the Brazilian legend, Gilberto Gil, speaking to our very own Brazilian legend, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Singer Gilberto Gil is Brazil's biggest musical icon. And he's not just a singer. For five years, Gil was Brazil's Minister of Culture, serving in the government of former President Lula from 2003 to 2008. He's just finished a documentary with director Pierre-Yves Bourgault called Veramundo. In it, Jill travels around the Southern Hemisphere, from South Africa to Australia and back to his homeland, meeting artists at society's margins and exploring the themes of social exclusion and racial discrimination. It's out already in various parts of Europe and has just been released in the UK, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco caught up with Jill before his recent headline set at the WOMAD Festival to find out more. It's not a story about once upon a time. We don't like the story about once upon a time. In a sense, I'm here looking for the traces of the similarity between us. They wanted to have a conversational film about the questions raised by colonial times, by slavery, by exploitation, social unrest and social instability, and they chose the Aborigines in Australia or the communities that were part of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and then some Indian tribes in, in the Amazon. And they asked me to propose the conversational elements for the different people in the film, and to have the music, to bring my music, and to ask some colleagues, musicians you know, from Australia and South Africa and Brazil, to do the thing. We did. We had a two-month filming season. I went to Australia, went to South Africa, went to the Amazon, and some filming in Bahia also in my hometown during Carnival. And then they brought the whole material to Switzerland and they processed the material and they got the, finally they got a film. During my life of growing up with Omonami, the West, there was a very big hole and there was a feeling empty and feeling lost. When you're an indigenous person from your country and you're led to a belief that you are no one, that is a terrible indictment of colonization. And after being to all of those countries in the Southern Hemisphere with quite similar pasts, you know, because they were all colonized, did you feel a lot of similarities between Brazil, Australia, South Africa? Sure, sure, sure. The, the British Empire in, in Australia and New Zealand, the Portuguese Empire in, in, in Brazil, the royal families, the royal houses, European houses that sponsored, I mean, those processes and the discovering and the bringing of technology to exploitation of the resources in those countries. The processes were very similar because they had the possibility of uh, a great accumulation of wealth, but they had also injustice and um, social imbalance and, and social inequality and, and all those things. I mean, very similar to the three areas. And at the same time, the film is very positive when talking about uh, racial diversity and everything. And are you an optimistic, Schubert? I am both. I am optimistic from a side and pessimistic from the other side because from the optimistic side, I always believe that we are trying as a whole humanity group. We are trying to get better, to develop. And from the pessimistic side, 
I'm not sure that we'll have time to get to a balanced situation that will, would enable us to go for a future with good prospects. So I'm at the same time optimistic and, and pessimistic. But I still believe that we can make it. Yeah. Everybody's related. Every, everybody's family. You are because I am. I am because you are. And talking about problems in society, uh, you know, Brazil actually has recently been, there's been a lot of protests. Do you see that as something positive, perhaps? It's not necessarily positive. It's at least neutral. And it's not just happening in Brazil. It's happening everywhere, in Spain, in Turkey, in Arab countries, in Egypt, in the States with the Occupy movement, in Spain, everywhere. I mean, I used to say that there is a, a tiring, there is a kind of little exhaustion, you know, to the whole civilizing thing. I mean, we've been accelerating too much in the late, at least 150 years, and we haven't been able to offer equal opportunities to everyone. So it's a little uncomfortable, the whole Uh, situation for the civilizing process globally. And finally, Gilberto, I just want to ask this final question. We're here in England, and I know you came to London 69 after yeah. being exiled. How do you feel when you come back to England? What it's, are your ex good, memories? It's a good thing, like, like, like going these places and coming here for the festival. I was, great memories came up, you know, like I was remembering the first time I went for the first Glastonbury festival, for the first and the second edition of, of the Isle of Wight festival, to the Bath festival. I mean, those were events and happenings that were giving the pace for what came later, you know. So we were sort of starting in England, you know, a whole thing that established the grounds for our contemporary cultural situation so for me it's an, an interesting opportunity to have those memories and to go back to those you know ancient times and see the families like the grandmas and grandpas you know here with the sons and the grandsons and the hippie uh, society you know uh, still living and perpetuating and you know and going ahead It's a nice thing. Now, Meludo is our call to say these things and write subjects that are bringing enlightenment to the people, making them aware where we come from, where we are now, so as to make love to the future. Now, something very special. Here's Robert Bound speaking to Boy George for a 2014 episode of Monocle on Culture. George, thank you so much for coming in and joining us on The Culture Show. Thank you for having me. What a lovely place. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. We were talking before um, we switched the microphones on about getting the builders in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that means something else to what we've done here, I think. Well, we I was talking about kind of more surgical kind right. of, you know. <laughs> okay, exactly. This is what I do. Is a new album. I haven't, had the, I haven't had the builders in, by the way. <laughs> so you, were you thinking I was leaving a pause there for you to kind of admit something amazing for I us? Wasn't sure, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't. That wasn't what I was doing. Okay. This is what I do. Is this, is that, that's quite a statement of intent, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I've kind of done a kind of organic album recording. So, yeah. uh, And I was put on the spot. I was doing an interview somewhere. 
and I hadn't had a title for the album and I was asked what's it called and I thought well this is what I do you know <laughs> yeah. although it's not entirely true because I do lots of different things but uh it more about kind of driving people towards you know what I do as a performer you know rather than kind of the things I've kind of done in my personal life there's an honesty to the kind of intent of this is what I do I make records and, exactly yeah and your voice on the record sounds amazing oh, I think that's much. one of those things that I mean as you said as you alluded to there when people google boy george they get all sorts of different things coming up people sometimes might have forgotten certainly since your last studio record in 95 how amazing that voice is obviously you've lent it to collaborations quite famously over the last few years and stuff but is that one of those things when that pops out of the speakers at you when you listen back to it in the studio you think god this works well i don't think you ever feel like that about what you do <laughs> you know it's kind of you're always a little bit slightly detached yeah. from what you do once you've done it. I mean, I did have a moment when we recorded, when we finished King of Everything, which was the first sort of focus track that we put out, I did have a quite emotional moment listening to it. And since then, it hasn't made me feel emotional because I suppose it's now out there in yeah. the world and so I can't feel attached to it. My baby has gone out. <laughs> but um, I did have a bit of a sort of an emotional moment. But um, it is quite difficult to, uh, you know, be objective about what you I do. I guess so. You know, you try to kind of put as much feeling into it without kind of overacting. You know, you want it to sound real and yeah. honest, but you don't want it to sound like you're really overdoing it. You know, I'm very conscious of, of that when I record now that I don't want to sound like I'm kind of pushing it or trying too hard. So it's... Finding a balance is is always kind of <laughs> <laughs> difficult. There he is, and that's not the album cover, but it should be George standing in the middle of a seesaw. That's <laughs> fine. After eighteen years, then we said nineteen ninety five was the last studio record. Yeah. How on earth do you decide what you want to do? How the feel and the vibe of the record is obviously something, and it has a very continuous kind of feeling of of it has an easy quality to it, right? Yeah. How did you decide on that? We didn't want to do anything that sounded like me trying to be current. You know, I didn't really want to sound like I was trying to fit into, you know, what's going on now because it's a bit like your uncle kind of putting yeah. on a boob tube and sort of trying to be, kind <laughs> <laughs> of be all trendy. Let's go partying. Yeah. I just wanted to sound. I, I, I went back actually to all the things that turned me on at sort of 10, 11, yeah. 12, 13, you know, the 70s. I went back to the 70s, which I always do when I'm looking for inspiration or, or kind of intention, sort of spirit, vibe. And so I went back to all the things, you know, and the 70s was such a bonkers decade for music because you had, you know, glam rock, reggae, you had the Goombay dance band and the Sex Pistols, yeah. Cliff Richard, you know, and your <laughs> disco, you know, it was all these sort of things that shouldn't have gone together. You know, when you watch some of the pops in the 70s, you never knew what was going to pop up, you know, Gary Glitter, Mrs. Mills, yeah. you know, it was, it was bonkers. And I was so influenced by all of that, you know, when I was growing up. So whenever I'm sort of looking for inspiration, I'll always go back to those people, the Bowies, you know, Roxy Music, Mark Bolan, Joni Mitchell, Dylan, you know, Leonard Cohen, all of those kind of characters. And these characters, you mentioned, you said intention. It's one of those things, sort of, uh, all, all these people have made such different music, but I guess it's that laser beam of kind of intention that they all had that you can kind of tap into, maybe. Yeah, I think, you know, what we did as well was we were putting on things like Avalon by Roxy Music, which is, mm. you know, now it's become a kind of great pop record, but... It was naff for a lot of years, wasn't it? Well, I know, actually, no, <laughs> it not was for me. It was not, supposed to be, but it, I didn't think it was. Not for me, I always thought it was a great piece of music, and I just... <laughs> I just think just the way that it's not a typical kind of pop song, you know, it kind of floats along yeah. and a bit like, say, uh, you know, Bowie, Where Are We Now? You know, that 
all the kind of melodies hang in the wrong places. When you expect it to kind of go into a bridge, it sort of does something else, which is very Bowie. So I was kind of looking at things like that. You know, we don't have to kind of keep changing the chords. It doesn't have to. And plus working with Richie Stevens, you know, the drummer Mm. and also the producer of the record, he is Mr. Kind of Understated. It's like, no, there's no need for those chords. You know, he's one of those, pull it back, pull it back. (laughs) And so that was great because it's exactly what I wanted, you know, just to sort of not sound like anyone was trying too hard. It's got that nice thing. It's a lean, mean album. There's not too many songs on it. It's not too long. It's a piece of work, you know? Yeah. And, and is that the thing? Did Richie have to sort of pull you back? Did you come into the studio with 24 songs and he scaled it back? Or you no, scaled it back no. together? How did it work? No, we only had a couple of other songs that we didn't end up using. We spent a lot of time getting the tracks that we wanted. You know, you, know, you start off by trying to find two key tracks. Those, for me, were King of Everything and My God, which I wrote yeah. with Youth you know killing joke youth you've reproduced the verve and once i'd got those kind of key tracks then i kind of knew what i wanted everything else to kind of be and uh you know richie is someone that's played with you know he's a a white reggae drummer but he's played with linton quasi johnson horace andy he's played with loads of amazing reggae bands and he's a very good reggae drummer so originally the album was all going to be reggae and then we sort of started doing it and decided that that would be quite restrictive. But we are working right now on a kind of this is what I dub. Okay, sort of thing, nice. Which, yeah. which I'm going to hopefully put out around my birthday in June. It's kind of like dub versions of, of some of the tracks and then a couple of three or four new tunes as well. So we'll see. It's really nice hearing the reggae back. I mean, obviously that was one of the key key parts of Culture Club when you, when you, guys, first, when you guys first broke out. That yeah. was one of the key things. It was, again, this white reggae that no one had heard. Maybe there was a bit of the police, maybe we're doing something vaguely similar, a very different style, but that white reggae thing is amazing. Yeah, I think on these tracks, we've we've been a bit more authentic. You know, I think yeah. with the culture club thing, it was a little bit white boy reggae. We've kind of gone for a bit more of a kind of authentic sound with these tracks. But uh, yeah, reggae's always been something that I've loved, you know, since sort of early 70s. That's when I really first heard things like Ken Booth, you know, uh, Johnny Nash... Susan Kadug and all that kind of really yeah. early lovers rock, which is really what first drew me to reggae music. And that lovers rock is in the soulful voice as well. Susan Kadug and Marsha Aitken, these kinds of female reggae singers with that, those amazing voices. Yeah. There's that in this new record of yours, I think. That's that soul reggae thing. Yeah, and we also had Dennis Bavel um, involved, you know, with us as well. So that was just great to have him around, you know, kind of spreading his. Magic. He just, he, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever met Dennis. No, Burrell. but I feel like he's walking through the studio with like an incense burner. He's Maybe it's just, not incense. No, no, usually with a bag of mangoes, but he's just <laughs> a force of nature. You know, he's just one of these people that, you know, almost when you're doing reggae records or working on anything in that vibe, if he comes along and kind of just, you know, with his bag of mangoes, you know, you, you, you don't, you're in the good right area, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> I like the idea of that. Sounds like a, sounds like a Rolling Stones rider from the 70s. I feel like I should write a bag song Bag of mangoes about, in inverted commas. I should know. write a song called Bag of Mangoes. <laughs> <laughs> that, please do that. Please, please, maybe that's... You, you said that you, you responded to a journalist, by, and this is how the album had its title, This Is What I Do. I might write that down, please, actually. Bag of, <laughs> bag of Mangoes. Bag of Mangoes. That's the dub LP. <laughs> Next up, here's Monocle's Tomas Lewis reporting on Sarajevo's Olympic legacy. The broader significance of the Games in 1984 to both Bosnia and the other Yugoslav nations begins in truth on May the 4th, 1980, at a hospital in the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. It was a Sunday afternoon and state television was showing a football match being played in the Croatian city of Split. Then, without warning, screens across Yugoslavia went black. 
a newsreader from Radio Television Belgrade announced the news. Umro je drug Tito. To su večera saopštili Centralni komitet Saveza komunista Jugoslavije i predsjedništvo Socialističke federativne republike Josip Broz Tito, president of Yugoslavia since 1953, was dead. At the football match in Split, the news was broken by the city's mayor, who walked onto the pitch signalling to the referee to halt the game. The ensuing scenes of mass grief at the stadium, where several of the players collapsed onto the grass in tears, was broadcast across the nation, compounding the national trauma being experienced in living rooms across Yugoslavia. When Tito died in May 1980, Yugoslavia was really in a state of disaffection. By disaffection, I mean the Communist Party had really lost steam. There was no energy. The country was living off of really international loans from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, so that you really had a country that was postponing a crisis. With its founding leader now gone, she says, and a complex rotating structure of leadership implemented in his place, it was the Olympic Games that gave Yugoslavia its final point of focus. Tito's death filled the people of Yugoslavia with uncertainty. Uncertainty because Tito was the only leader they had known. There was no question really yet of whether Yugoslavia would continue to exist. It was really a question of how could Yugoslavia exist without Tito, but it wasn't a question of the country disintegrating. And with the preparations of the Olympic Games and the Olympic Games in 1984, Bosnia could host the greatest world event in that time. Simmering beneath the Olympic Games in February 1984 and in the years that followed were burgeoning nationalist movements, from Slovenia in the north to Croatia in the west. But it was from Belgrade, the Yugoslav capital, that the nationalist idea would become most potent. Laura Silber explains. I remember watching Slobodan Milosevic speak. It was clear that he was ready, that there was a threat of military force or at least of brute force, of police force, that he was going to have his political way. And then between 1989, that date in 1989, and really April 91, you had little spurts of conflict, little episodes of nationalism. Yugoslavia and its diverse ethnic fabric were unravelling. The scramble for independence within the country's newly independent nations would make Bosnia and its capital Sarajevo, home to ethnic Serbs, Croats and Muslims, the focus of the bloodiest war in Europe since the Second World War. Mark Phillips is the chief foreign correspondent for CBS News. He covered the war from 1992. The front lines didn't really matter because the the major casualties, numbers of casualties, were caused by bombardment, artillery and rocket strikes into the city and they could come from anywhere. There was no behind the lines. Michael Montgomery, who'd worked on the American television coverage of the 1984 Olympic Games, returned to Bosnia as the fall of Yugoslavia transformed into civil war. 
From 87 to 89, I would spend summers climbing the mountains around Sarajevo with these Bosnian friends. When the war came, the people I had met during the Olympics and got to know since then, they were caught up in the war. And unfortunately, some of the men ended up fighting on uh, opposite sides in Sarajevo. And my best friend from the Olympic era actually fought on the Bosnian-Serb side and died in Sarajevo during the war. The siege of Sarajevo, which began in the spring of 92, continued for over three years, making it the longest armed siege of a city since the Second World War. Laura Silbergen. After the first six months, the year, there were, windows were plastic. There was glass because of shelling, because of detonations. Much of the glass had been broken in windows, so there was plastic covering windows. But you couldn't walk down the streets because that was referred to as sniper alley. People didn't have access to a normal, ordinary existence. The journalist Michael Montgomery, who covered the war for the UK's Daily Telegraph newspaper, explains how he made the precarious journey to the Bosnian capital at the height of the siege to trace the whereabouts of a friend he'd made during the Winter Games a decade before. When the war started in in Sarajevo, the uh, Serbian Bosnian Serb forces quickly captured part of the city, including the neighborhood of Gerbovica, which is really quite close to downtown and just um, a few hundred meters from the Holiday Inn Hotel. And my friend was living in that neighborhood, and he got caught on that side of the conflict, and he ended up having to uh, fight with the Bosnian Serb army. I lost track of him during the first year of the war, and by the time I was able to visit his neighborhood, I learned he was dead And uh, initially they told me that he had been killed by a sniper, but I later learned that um, he most likely died of a suicide or uh, accidentally shot himself. But it became a very dark story because my friend, who was a very fun-loving, really quite typical Sarajevan, uh, loved the mountains, um, became something quite different during the war. As international efforts to broker a peace deal gained pace, the war on the ground continued, and Sarajevo's Olympic venues assumed an increasingly grim role. One of the first landmarks to be attacked in April 1992 was the Olympic Museum, and its director, Edin Numankadic, was inside. The Olympic Museum, who was bombarding on the 27th of April 92. And I, like director, have big responsibility to protect museum with my colleague, with my friends. It's a horrible experience, of course, but you always have chance to fight, to protect, and we fight. That was our job in this time. The Kosovo Stadium, where figure skater Sander Dubravcic had lit the Olympic cauldron ten years previously, had become an open-air mortuary. Mark Phillips of CBS News again. The Olympic venues were, as all the city was, weren't weren't just uh, transported into battlefields. They were transported into graveyards. One of the most striking images of post-Olympic Civil War Sarajevo was the main Olympic uh, stadium, the hockey and figure skating rink, uh, surrounded by thousands of graves hastily dug. As un-Olympic a venue as you could possibly imagine... The Zetra Ice Rink, where British skaters Torville and Dean won Olympic gold, 
had been burned to the ground. The Holiday Inn, too, which had headquartered the great and the good of the IOC during the Games, housed journalists covering the war, its recognisable yellow and red facade becoming increasingly battle-scarred as the streets around the hotel became sniper alleys for fighters from all sides of the conflict. The author, Laura Silber again. The people of Sarajevo suffered tremendously. Over half of the population was either relocated forcibly or fled. You had about 100,000 people killed. Cemeteries in Sarajevo expanding because there was no place to bury the dead. There were many people who were disappeared, many people who were killed, who were buried in mass graves, whose bodies are only now being returned. The mountain venues that ringed the city too became sniper strongholds. Mark Phillips of CBS News again. The whole ski area above the town up near Palais was the centre of the Bosnian Serb forces and was a major artillery site. The whole ridge looking down over the city was uh, full of artillery pieces and makeshift and rocket launchers and that kind of thing. It was booming of artillery shells being fired from there was the first thing you heard as you approached Bosnia in those days and uh, usually the last thing you heard as you left. As the war continued in Bosnia into 1994, in the Norwegian town of Lillehammer, the 17th Winter Olympics got underway. The British figure skaters Torvil and Dean were also at Lillehammer. They won the title in Sarajevo. Jane Torvil and Christopher Dean. A reprise of Bolero skated as a tribute to the people of Sarajevo. As well-intentioned as the tributes from Norway may have been, they had little impact on the war on the ground in Sarajevo and beyond. Nowhere by now, it felt, had escaped the devastation. The journalist Michael Montgomery has this graphic account of what the reality in Bosnia had become. I think the hardest thing in retrospect is seeing children killed. I didn't have children at the time, and I'm glad I didn't. But it's a very difficult thing um, to do, which we had to do sometimes, which was visiting the hospital, visiting the morgue. I consider myself fortunate that I actually didn't see a child literally killed in front of me, which unfortunately some of my colleagues did see. But uh, I do remember... Uh, seeing a girl who had been killed, uh, who had been shot, uh, who was about seven or eight, uh, lying in uh, the morgue uh, in Sarajevo. I don't know why we were there. I think we were talking to the man who who ran the morgue, who had seen so many dead bodies. But um, I do remember her, and uh, her face was perfectly intact, and she was very pale, and she was wearing a dress, and she looked like a doll. And uh, that's probably the most indelible image I have of my time in Sarajevo. And finally, for this episode, we head back to a favorite tall stories, where Robert Bowne tells us about his relationship with the Mount Pleasant sorting office in London. 
The Mount Pleasant Sorting Office is one of those hulks that give you the willies when you're a child. One of those monolithic lumps of London that proved to my young country boy's eyes that the city was a vast unknowable. A place of smoke blackened windows peeping out, but with no doors with which to let you in. That sort of all changed. I'm a big boy now. But there's still something attractive, mysterious and not altogether benign about the high walls of Mount Pleasant. And those high walls hid such industry. For a hundred years, no more, it was the pump-pump-pumping heart of communication for the capital of the empire of empires. Missives of note, reports from the frontier, letters from the front and postcards of sauciness were sorted, franked, sent, fetched, carried, dropped, oops, chucked, filed, pigeonholed, signed, sealed, delivered. From Farringdon, underground, a mail train kept it busy to and fro all night long. Imagine sleeping above that line. Well, now you can, hedge funders. They're turning it into something even more willies-inducing than any mere architecturally-induced childhood trauma. Executive London Living. Just for you guys. The Mount Pleasant Sorting Office was opened at the end of the summer in 1889 on the site of the old Cold Bath Fields Prison. An almost onomatopoeic tag for an institution of correction and something the demolition derby didn't bother fully flattening. Build on top of it. So they did. Before, it was nags and drays pulling the post, then fleet upon fleet of pillarbox red Royal Mail vans. My favourite was the Dormobile with the sliding driver's side door, always open to the elements, a postie's leg flying by at eye height. Why do postmen wear shorts even in December? A pod of Father Christmases in short trousers, like they're still at school, but they still get served in their dozens of squadrons in the Apple Tree Pub on Mount Pleasant's southwest corner. The posties local. Pints with peeps who can decipher even my hieroglyphics. That was before. After email, now, it's a mostly disused space. A vast urban cavern of the deep, like an underwater cave in which you could lose an Atlantis. The wind, and it seems a special sort, will blow an envelope from one side of this postcode-wide property to the other in the blink of an eye, like a paper plane. There's a mysterious topography to this old place, like a military test site hidden in plain sight between horn-rimmed Clerkenwell and inky old Bloomsbury. They knock these things down, don't they? As in forestry, urban coppicing's not a bad idea. Chop down the dead wood to let the saplings get a look in. At the moment, this is a post-industrial city glade. Breathe it in before it's flats with porters and iPhone-controlled aircon. And if you want the willies, listeners, you know just where to find them. That's a selection of some of our favorite moments on air, selected as part of the celebrations of 10 years of Monocle 24 this month. Listen out for more live on Monocle 24 or browse the selection at your leisure over at monocle.com. 